Welcome to CyberCast 2.0, patched, updated, and free of zero-day vulnerabilities. I'm your host, James Mersall. And I'm your host, Abigail Blue. Last month, the Government Accountability Office released a report that indicated less than half of the 23 agencies the GAO had surveyed had risk management frameworks in place. Today, we'll be speaking with John Zingardi, who is the Chief Information Officer for the Department of Homeland Security, to talk about how his agency, which is one of the agencies that has an RMF in place, implemented that framework. He also discusses other optimization efforts he has led in his time as DHS CIO. Since 2017, Zangardi has overseen information technology and its related security and management for the department, comprising 265,000 employees. Zangardi is responsible for end-to-end information technology, network security, and spectrum oversight. He led the optimization of the Security Operations Center and implemented a hybrid multi-cloud strategy that includes a cloud-based productivity system. Previously, Zangardi has served as the Department of Defense Principal Deputy CIO and Acting CIO, Acting Department of Navy CIO, Naval Flight Officer, and more. He holds a PhD from George Mason University and a master's degree from the Naval Postgraduate School. We're here with Dr. Zangardi at his office. Thank you for joining us. So our first question, what are your current priorities as CIO and what challenges have you faced recently in this regard? So, you know, being a CIO is a very interesting job. It is probably one of the hardest CXO jobs out there because of the man signals that you get from leadership, the way technology is moving so quickly, the number of folks that want to attack your network. So you've got it coming at you from all sides. Expectations are high. So what we're focused on is modernization of the network is the first thing. So we're going to utilize the GSA EIS contract to do the modernization. And we have spent a long time over the past year focusing on what it is we exactly want. Across our CIO council, which includes 22 of our components, we have universal agreement on our approach. The next step for us is to go over to OMB, along with the Chief Procurement Officer for DHS, Soraya Correa, and brief OMB on our approach to make sure that they're good with it. Then reach out to industry will begin after that. So as part of this process, we did talk to industry. We engaged with them prior. We had industry days. We released some draft RFPs. We understood what they were capable of offering, and we combined it with the needs of our CIOs to to reach a conclusion. Now, the word I used was 22 component CIOs. Anytime you try to get agreement among 22 people, that's a challenge. But I will say that across the department, the CIO stepped up to the plate, and we worked hard to get to where we needed to be to meet all the mission needs. The next thing we focus on very hard here is network security. We have started on a task last year to begin doing Security Operations Center, or SOC, optimization. We have 17 SOCs across the department, so the question is, how can we do it better? So when I briefed the Deputies Management Advisory Group last year, so that is a group chaired by the Deputy Secretary and basically the deputies from each of the components, they wanted us to move forward on optimizing it. And I could have made it a top-down kind of dictate, but what we did is we decided to make a little bit more of a bottom-up approach. So instead of my Chief Information Security Officer or CISO shop running it, we assign CISOs from the different components to do this. So the CISO from CBP is in charge of the approach we're going to take on tools. And the idea there is getting to a common approach on tools across the department. So we're using similar things, leveraging CDM, continuous diagnostics uh, mitigation as part of that, and being able to develop a dashboard and be able to 
filter that information up to that dashboard. The second piece of it was on policy and procedures. So the CISO for ICE has that one. And we've actually been moving very smartly in that category. So what we did is we are leveraging the DOD Cybersecurity Service Program, or CSSP. That's a manual for how you lay in policies and procedures. We took that because plagiarism is the highest form of flattery. We modified it for DHS because not everything DOD does will match what we do here. And we put it in place. We went out and did our first inspections of one of our socks out in Arizona. And we had good results from that. So what we're doing there is by inspecting each of the security operations centers, we're raising the bar across the areas they're inspected in 35 different areas. And that allows us to come back and go, hey, where'd you do good? Where'd you do bad? Where can we improve you? So we have another one teed up for December. We're going to do our next inspection. And every three years, we want to go through and re-inspect each one of these. So you get through your inspection. We'll give you an authority to operate. You're good for three years. We'll come back, re-inspect you. And hopefully during that time, they keep raising the bar because it is a vital function. I mean, securing our network is incredibly important. So along the security lines, authority to operate, which I mentioned as part of security operations centers, we're looking at authority to proceed and other means to speed up the authority to operate process for our department. And that takes a couple different forms. It's making sure we leverage the controls that have already been authorized by another component or another department or even the FedRAM process. And we took that and we established a policy for reciprocity directing or suggesting strongly to the components that you leverage those controls from say FedRAMP or another department or agency and reduce the amount of work you have to do. But we took it a step further and we did this thing called authority to proceed and we take a look at the system if it's not financial or privacy and we are gonna look at bringing those into the fold and go, hey, what can we do to reduce and take advantage of the controls and then look at any of the high risks that are there. Mitigate those high risks and then put it on the network. Get it out there operating and over a period of a year, knock down the other vulnerabilities. And at the end of that year, they complete everything they're supposed to do. They get their ATO and they're off to go. So they will go into the continuous monitoring thing. But as you look to the future, we're beginning now to start doing, and I'm not gonna call it strategic thinking, but I would call it more tactical thinking about how might we implement zero trust across DHS. So we're still in that thought phase. We're beginning to think it through on how we might implement zero trust. We're beginning to look at data. So I briefed the Deputies Management Advisory Group last year on the need for a Chief Data Officer. And I was given the task as a CIO to lead what we call a winter study. So we studied what CDO would be over the winter. We also received some legislation requiring us to appoint a CDO. So those two things came together. I briefed the DMAG early this spring and the decision was made to let's do a CDO. And we lined out the next task for that chief data officer to do, which is hey, how should we develop an enterprise strategy on data? What type of resources do you need to man up this office? What are the policies and authorities that you need to have in place in order to do this job? So we've appointed an interim chief data officer, and that's important because of those three tasks. You know, until you really know the resources you want to apply to it, the tasks you want to go after, you're still in that interim thing. And building the role up right now is the task of Brian Teeple. He's someone I hired out of DOD. He used to work for me there. He is our chief technical officer, so he will be our CTO 
and our interim CDO, and his job is to begin answering these questions so we can bring it back to leadership and go, hey, here's how we want to implement this thing and instantiate what a CDO does for us. So our challenges are in modernization, our challenges are on security, and our challenges are on data. There's other things we're doing in data. I'm trying to put up finishing touches on a data strategy, but I think those are the three main ones that we're after right now. Prior to working at DHS, you were Principal Deputy CIO at DOD. Both agencies' missions are to protect or defend the homeland in some capacity. Are there any major differences you've noticed between the two roles? Sure. I was the Principal Deputy and Acting CIO at DOD. I was also, you know, the Department of Navy CIO, so I've, I've done this gig a few times. There are big differences between DOD and DHS. So in DHS, we have 22 components, and there's greater heterogeneity among the components in their missions than say there is between DOD and the four services in the fourth estate. If you think about it in these terms, if you look at FEMA, FEMA's mission is about dealing with disaster. That's an organization that runs to where something bad happened. Their risk tolerance is probably a little less than Secret Service, who has to protect the president. So within this organization, you have greater heterogeneity. When you're in Department of Defense, as you look across Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps, while they are different, there's less heterogeneity. So that's, that's a change. It's not a huge change, but it's something that you have to be aware of when you sit down at the CIO Council that you account for the variances between the mission sets that each one of those CIOs might bring forward. And that was something that we had to filter into our network modernization strategy. How do you make sure that the mission that FEMA's working to solve and the mission that TSA is working to solve or the mission that CBP is working to solve can somehow fit within that contract structure? So that's a complexity you have to deal with. But I would take it a little step further and say that DHS, I think we're in our 17th year right now, so it is still a teenager by uh, you know human standards. DOD is, is probably advancing towards social security in terms of age, but what you have is an organization at DOD that has more robust and refined processes. The DHS, I find that we're still modifying and growing our processes, and that's good and bad for both organizations. Sometimes if your processes are too developed, it could slow you down. And sometimes if your processes are not too developed, it can make you a little less controlled. They both have advantages and disadvantages. DOD will take you down a very process-driven lane that gets you to a good outcome. DHS will take you down a lane that's a little bit more limber. In other words, hey, I need a little flexibility here and we could jump more quickly. So it all depends on how you look at things. So the biggest differences are in development of processes, and I would think in the, the relative heterogeneity of the, the different departments. But they're both doing a wonderful job supporting the country and keeping us safe. Are there any similarities between the two agencies that might surprise people? And also, how can the two agencies learn from one another? The biggest similarity between both of them, and I'm actually proud to say this is, you know, coming from DOD, your focus, and, and I'm ex-military, retired Navy, it's always about mission. And mission's what gets people excited. And what I'm really happy to tell you is that people are the same here. There's the same level of patriotism and dedication to duty that exists in DOD. You find it at DHS. That's a big similarity, and that should make the taxpayers and the people in this country happy that, hey, we're just as dedicated here to doing the right thing as they are at DOD. In fact, 
I'm very proud of having played a role in both of these organizations. How do we learn from each other? Hey, any chance I get, I will pilfer talent from anywhere that's good. And I have hired a significant amount of folks from Department of Navy and DOD, and I hope that we can, uh, they will hire folks from us. Because I think it's good to do that cross-pollination, and we need to extend that in government to where we're not afraid to bring people in from industry more quickly and get our government folks out to industry that that exchange of data. I believe fundamentally that if you're in a job too long, you become stale and you, you don't challenge your vision, you don't challenge what you're doing. So that ability to switch departments, say going from DOD to DHS or vice versa, I think is critical to, to give you a different perspective, to take the things you learn there and challenge your viewpoints or find out, hey, my viewpoint was pretty good, we need to implement this thing. Well, you mentioned that you started your career in the Navy. How would you say your past experience at the defense and tactical level has informed your role both in civilian life and at the strategic level? So, you know, still deep inside of me, if you cut me open, you'll find my blood is navy blue. Probably always will be. You don't do as many years with that organization and not have a deep relationship with it. So I left college back in the Reagan buildup, and I just felt that flying planes might be cool. I didn't say it was, a, you know, an off-the-cuff kind of decision, but I decided, hey, let's, let's go do that. And I fell in love with it. I flew P-3s for 25 years in the Navy and had a great time at the end of my career. The Navy was kind enough to invite me back to be a member of the senior executive service. And I made the transition then from being a, an aviator and focused on aviation issues to now all of a sudden being focused on IT. So there's no straight line between the two things. But I went into what was then the N6 organization, which is responsible for basically the IT and the networks. And I was their budget guy. And later on, uh, Admiral Ruffhead, who was the CNO back then, decided to do a merger of the N2, the intelligence piece, the N6, or the pipes piece, with some other aspects of UAVs, EW, and some other ISR things. And it was called information dominance. And the organization's still around today. It's N2, N6. That was part of the, the three senior advisors that helped develop what that might look like. And I was a part of that organization for several years before I rolled on to my next job in acquisition as a deputy assistant secretary of the Navy for C4I, IO, and space. It's the longest title in the Navy. And from there, I ended up doing a gig for almost two years alongside that DASN job as the Department of Navy CIO before heading upstairs to OSC to work as the principal deputy DOD CIO and the acting DOD CIO before coming over to here to DHS. No straight line between those things, but I will tell you it's been an exciting career path. One of the things I've learned in life is you really never know where life's going to take you despite all your planning. I never saw myself in IT. I never saw myself in aviation, and I never saw myself as a CIO. In fact, if there are people out there who remember me, my first encounter with the CIO community was like, those guys really don't know what they're doing. And I'm sure there's a few people giggling at that because I am now a CIO and living that dream. That always amazes me hearing where career paths take people. I studied at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and I had one professor who started off in the Air Force Reserves and now focuses on budget issues and also not just aerospace, but space issues, which is completely different from where he thought he was going. But, you know, life has turns and twists. The key thing in life is that you come to work every day on time. You put in a full <laughs> day's work. You maintain your honesty and integrity and you make sure you're delivering product. And if you do those things, you will tend to turn out in life to be successful. Words to live by. So switching gears slightly. 
you mentioned that you led the Security Operations Center optimization at DHS. What factors would you say played into that effort? And uh, were there any unexpected challenges along the way and any improvements that have resulted from the optimization? Sure. Look, at the most important thing for me as the CIO is making sure that our network is secure. If our network's not secure, I'm not doing my job. So one of the focuses I had was coming in here and saying, hey, where are our security operations center and how can I ensure that we are ensuring the integrity of our network and the data? At the end of the day, if our senior executives, politicals and other government workers or folks from the Coast Guard can't communicate and be assured that the data they're receiving has not been compromised, I've failed in my job. So that's the reason I took that on. That's the reason we're looking very hard at our ATO process to speed it up and get things done quicker. That's the reason I'm beginning to look at zero trust. And the reason I'm looking at things like that, and let's just take zero trust for a second, we're at an inflection point. And, you know, the past was all about perimeter defense and basically putting a wall around our network in simplest terms. But the proliferation of mobile devices, Internet of Things, which is coming down the road, 5G, is really going to change the amount of devices trying to get on my network. So we have to start looking at a different way of protecting the network and the data that rides on that network. We have to assure our leadership that the communication they receive was done quickly and it was not compromised. And that's the reason I went after those kinds of things. So you mentioned earlier that there are 22 components within DHS. They're ranging from USCIS, Coast Guard to TSA, and each has their own CIO. Do you coordinate with those agencies? And if so, what opportunities and challenges does that coordination bring? Yes. <laughs> if I didn't coordinate with them, that would be you a wouldn't bad be doing your job. <laughs> yes. So that's a very simple yes. Hey, look, they're all good people. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but my last deputy CIO, Steve Rice, left to go out to industries at Navy Federal Credit Union as a deputy CIO there. Steve did a great job. He left behind very large shoes. And I went internal to hire the new deputy CIO. So I went to ICE and we're hiring Beth Capella. Beth will be the was acting ICE CIO. Prior to that, she was the deputy CIO over at ICE. So that is a statement to the CIO saying, hey, you are a high quality organization and we are going to draw from you to get the quality up here. When I look at Beth, she brought the knowledge of DHS and that's important. And that's what Steve Rice brought to me, a deeper understanding for a guy coming from DOD, even after being here two years, it's still important to have someone on your staff who's close to you, who's got 10, 15, 20 years of experience. She understands IT. She's a closer. She gets things done. And more importantly, she's a leader. So reaching into that community to basically promote up to the highest ranking civilian for IT is a vote of confidence in the community. So you ask, do we work together? We do CIO councils. We talked about our movement to EIS and using that. Those were some long discussions within the CIO community about how we do that. I would say that we work together very well, but anytime you deal with people with that diversity or heterogeneity of mission that we have and that number, it's going to be a challenge to pull everyone together and find where is that sweet spot where we all can work together. What I will tell you is this is a group of folks that are talented and they're willing to work together to get to solutions, but they will defend with vigor how they accomplish their mission, and that's what they should do. How have emerging technologies impacted the work of DHS and how it approaches its cybersecurity focus? So technology is moving very quickly. So 
I'm going to start talking about cloud. And we talked a little about authority to operate and how we can move more effectively out to the cloud and getting those things authorized for our network and leveraging the work that FedRAMP does. Cloud brings opportunities and risks. The opportunities are it can accelerate how I move or how this department moves in terms of artificial intelligence and machine learning. It can help me drive out cost. It can provide things like disaster recovery for me that I may or may not have for things. It is a force multiplier that we are going to take advantage of. And our strategy has always been federated, hybrid, private, public mixture, and that's the way we're going to go about it. So we're going to look at each system and each application and make the best determination on where it should go. But when you start thinking about cloud, it brings with it some risks. My biggest fear, and you've probably seen this in the news over the last couple of weeks, where a, a semi-insider had knowledge of server misconfigurations, right? Making sure that the configurations we have set in the cloud service provider is among one of my highest priorities. So there's a lot of good here. I got to make sure that the bad gets mitigated. So we talked about our socks and making sure we have good, solid socks in place and that we're doing the monitoring, that we have CASB tools in place that can help assure that the settings, the configuration settings are where they should be. We also need to make sure that our staff is trained on cloud at various levels. Not everyone needs to be high level understanding of cloud or graduate level. Maybe they just need to have high school level. So we've laid out training. We did our first cloud stand down last Monday where our staff was required to go out and do appropriate cloud training. And we're going to continue doing it next month. We're going to focus more on cloud security next month. But we have contract reps or cores that oversee our contracts. We want to make sure that they understand the contract and what is being managed. That's why the training was important. We also need to work very closely with our chief procurement officer organization to ensure that the right clauses are in the contract so we can ensure the security. So what I'm trying to lay out to you is it's about training and monitoring, making sure the folks have the tools and they do their job. It's about having the right tools in your security operations center so they can do the work. And it's also about making sure that the contracts are set up in a way that ensures that it's done. So what I'm saying to you at the end of the day is lots of goods with going to the cloud and we're going to go there. We're moving actually pretty swiftly there. And we also want to make sure that as we move there, we do it in a way that protects the integrity of the data and the communications within DHS. So a recent GAO report found that less than half of the 23 agencies they surveyed have risk management frameworks in place. However, I'm happy to see, and I'm sure you're happy to say, that DHS is in that group of agencies that's leading the way and does have a risk management framework in place. What is your experience from designing and implementing that risk management framework, and what advice would you give to agencies who are currently still in that design or implementation process? So the advice is just do it. I want to give credit to Paul Beckman here. He's the CISO for DHS, and he works very closely with the, the CISO council. So we also have a CISO council that does function the same way as our CIO council. And risk is one of the primary discussions that Paul and I have almost on a daily basis. We pay very close attention to the news and we watch what's happening there. We pay very close attention to the intelligence. We pay very close attention to what the vendors are putting out in terms of patches. And we talk through all the risks that come with the decisions we make on prioritizing one thing over another or where to push harder or where we can back off. Because remember, when you start talking about risk, we can't build a wall that's entirely impenetrable. We have to make reasonable decisions about what risk is tolerable or low and what risk is not or high or how you might be able to 
deal with this risk in a way that still allows you to function with that high risk item on your network. So making those sorts of decisions is a product of our cyber defense matrix and some of our cybersecurity maturity models. So the dependency here is people, people that are trained, that's important. People that are willing to come forward and talk about risk. And I'm going to give you one of my pet peeves about IT people. We don't speak in English. IT people need to speak in English. Because when you brief non-IT people, they need to understand. So our, our acronym soup and all the words we use have to be translated. So having talented, skilled people, having the right technology and the right processes. And it sounds a lot like what I said on SOC. But I'm going to take this a step further. Right now, if, you're a, if you work in the, the CISO business or you're a cybersecurity expert, you're a hot commodity. And industry really wants you. And to be fair, they pay better than government. I fundamentally believe that government needs to pay better in this field to offset that disadvantage. When you look at the salary differences, they're high. What we've instituted to try to help with that is cyber retention incentive pay. We put it in place this year. It's not going to make my folks who work here in any way equal to what they could get out in the commercial world. But what it can do is give them a bump in their pay that makes them feel better, that they're valued, right? We take that, we look at each job in the cybersecurity realm, and we determine what training that particular job needs, and we try to make sure they get that training, so I have a budget to accomplish that. And then we look at their performance. So based upon their job, the training this person has, and their performance, we assign a factor that gives them cyber retention incentive pay. And what that does is it, it helps, I think, offset that difference. But a lot of the folks who are here don't necessarily feel they have to be paid what the industry gets paid. They might want that. They're here because they like the mission, they believe in America, and this is an act of service that's important to them. So they get some of their rewards from you know, non-quantitative things. You know, The feeling of coming into work one day and going, hey, I solved a tough problem for the government and therefore we are safer because of that. So I don't think we can ever completely offset that delta, but I think the inherent mission and the way people feel about service helps do some of it. And cyber retention incentive pay helps bring them up closer to that level where they can live with it. That's definitely something I've heard from a lot of CISOs, including within DHS. It's about the mission and anything that helps offset that, whether it's the retention salary increase or whether it's providing benefits or a career path is always great to see. So my next question is, what do you think is the most important quality or skill to have working in federal IT going off of that? And other than hiring higher pay authorities and direct hiring authority, what else is DHS doing to increase the hiring of IT professionals? So a couple different questions there. So I'm going to just pick on uh, Paul Beckman here for a bit. He's the DHS CISO. That's a departmental CISO. You can say he's either the CISO for the second largest department or third largest, depending on how you count things. That's a fairly responsible position. Paul's a psychology major, but he went out and he had the desire to get into his profession and learn the trade, if you will. And that means taking the courses, doing the right things, building up the repertoire of experience that gets you there. What I'm getting at is the most important quality to have is desire, right? And we talked about it earlier that it's important to come to work every day, be there on time, kind of do what your boss says and be honest. Those are the things that really break you out. I myself am not as worried about what your major was. I'm more worried about the skills that you bring, your attitude that you bring, your zest for work than I am about that. 
Hiring IT professionals is a challenge, and it will continue to be a challenge as long as the economy is hot and there's a disparity in pay. We're looking at the cyber talent management approach that's being developed by Angie Bailey down in our Chico office. It's a very innovative approach. If you look back at the hiring process for GSs in the country, the last two big changes to it occurred during the presidency of Calvin Coolidge and Harry S. Truman. So if you think about it, those were the days of the typewriter, uh, vacuum tubes, right? You get it. It's, so the process we have for hiring folks has really been formed in the past. And, and what we need, and, and going back to one of my earlier answers, is something that creates greater flexibility for us to bring people on with the skills we need. Because IT is constantly changing and the skill set you need is different. I think it's important to get that cross-pollination between industry and government. So we need to be able to hire more quickly. So I think the path that Angie's taking us down with the CTMS, Cyber Talent Management System, is the right approach to give us the flexibility. And I know Angie and her team have done an awful lot of work to bring that to fruition. So... We want to take advantage of that. We want to bring in better people. We focused this summer on cyber interns. We brought on a cadre of about 10 folks. We spent about eight weeks with them. Hopefully, at least it's the feedback I got from them. They appreciated the time. They learned a little. They got interested in what they did. They were impressed. One of the folks mentioned to me that he thought he was going to come here and just do data entry for the whole summer. And, and no, we gave them projects and they actually had to do something where they used their brain and what they're learning in school. The question to be seen is, was that time with us over the summer rewarding enough? And the sense is that they, it was to them, but was it rewarding enough for them to say, I really want to get into the government? And one of the biggest problems with getting into the government is how long it takes. And so if CTMS can knock that down and make it more reasonably or more expeditious for you to get in there, I think right there is a success. So it's surprising to learn that CISO Paul Beckman holds a psychology degree. Listeners might also find it surprising that you hold a PhD. What led you to pursue that PhD? Uh, well, my wife would say stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I like learning. I mean, it's really that simple. The PhD, you can look at it a couple ways. One, do I use it every day? No, PhD is a research degree. I don't do any research here. In fact, I don't even remember how to do research. But that's what a PhD is, is all about. And I have a love of economics. I know it's the dismal science, and one of my heroes is Milton Friedman. But nonetheless, do I use the PhD on an everyday basis? I would tell you no, because there isn't a real big need for an economist in my job. But for me, it was the need to learn more, and that's something that motivated me. One of the things I learned as I did the PhD is it's like a toolbox, and you can always put a new tool in your toolbox. And one of the things you learn as you become a PhD is like, well, why can't I do that? And you just go out and learn how to put the tool in your toolbox. So let me give you an example. Milton Friedman's son, Milton Friedman was an economist, passed away. His son was trained to be a physicist, but he became interested in economics. He's now an economist. What it teaches you is that you have a tool set. One of my very good friends, Kip Thomas, went through the same program with me. He is now up in Boston working in a university, running a lab that is looking at the brain. That's not what he learned in his PhD. I know what he learned in his PhD. So what it is, is it opens up your aperture into realizing that, hey, you can take on a lot of different things. Just go learn it. It's important to build that tool set. You never know where you can apply it. So in your time as a federal IT professional, what trends and evolving threats have you witnessed? What about the solutions to those threats, and are they changing? IT is about constant change. So we talked about cloud and my concerns with that and my fear, and it's 
breaches and exposure of data is the thing that I am most concerned with across the board. And that's where I spend most of my time. But if I'm looking out at the horizon of what technology is coming down path, that really makes me think hard about the future. And it's years off. It's decade or more, at least in my view, is quantum computing. Recently, I was out at Moffett Field with a few of our CIOs, and we went there. Many of you don't know, there's a NASA Ames research facility there, and they actually have some quantum computers there that they've been working, I think, hand-in-glove with Google. And it's just to, to see that there's research being done in this field and that people are beginning to understand it better. I still believe quantum computing is off in the future, but when we solve the problem of the coefficient of error and we get to a point where we have that ability, it really starts knocking down our ability to ensure our cryptological keys are safe. It's a game changer. And if you think it through, that's the biggest concern I have out on the horizon. Are we investing enough and are we moving smartly enough to make sure that we understand this technology and don't lose our edge? It's good to think about that. I remember, so speaking about degrees and, and outcomes, my degree is in also economics, but also international relations. But I took a, a cybersecurity course that got down into the details to try and translate between the language of cybersecurity experts and the language of, say, everyday people. <laughs> they need a Google translator for uh, IT language. You can get one for just about every language on the planet, but IT. That'd be great. But yeah, I remember one thing we talked about was cryptography. And you know, right now, keys are pretty safe. There's no way with computing power to untangle a, a standard cryptological key. But talking about quantum computing, who knows what the future holds. The world changes. But when you get to quantum computing, it changes how we might be able to do optimization problems. And if you think of optimization problems in terms of manufacturing things, well, well, you're making a sports car. Right now, that optimization problem on where you might put the batteries if it was a hybrid sports car might not be as precise as it would be under a quantum computing future. You might be able to optimize that in a completely different way. So optimization problems open up a world of opportunity in manufacturing. I think I remember hearing from NASA that yeah, they're using quantum computing to solve math problems that no human brain could calculate if they took their entire career. So, yeah, just like that. So I think we're coming to close to the end of our interview, but just a few questions we wanted to ask you before then. What is a major initiative in challenge in cybersecurity that is not being talked about or perhaps not being talked about enough? So I think the things we need to be talking about right now are Internet of Things and 5G. And we're beginning to focus on that. So those open up a world of opportunities. And, but we also have to be very aware that as we bring those things on, we pay close attention to the supply chain management associated with both of those technologies that they come downstream, and I think we are. But we also have to make sure that we implement the right security. 5G is part of our future. I will always issue mobile devices to people traveling overseas. I have to make sure that that device is secure no matter what network they plug into because they are going to plug into overseas networks. So we need to be thinking about those two things. And this kind of comes back to that zero trust approach. Right now I'm running, for example, a pilot on my mobile devices to put in place a new security application to make sure that Things that shouldn't be there aren't there. So we're running the pilot across, I think, 2,200 folks. And the data we get from that will help inform a decision on what path we take with there. So my biggest concern in the future is mobility and how it links into things like 5G and IoT and the vulnerabilities associated with that. That's here and now and right on my doorstep. Great. So looking toward the future, what are you focusing on next for DHS? Are there any challenges you're preparing for in advance or opportunities that you're keeping in mind? So the things I'm focused on for DHS are 
network modernization, EIS, all the security things I talked about from SOC optimization to ATOs to zero trust, getting CDO in place and beginning to develop a data strategy that begins moving us towards ML and AI implementation here across our business systems. Those are the biggest things. I also want to make sure that the other challenges that we have are met in terms of having the right talent on board. The future is different. So who we hire in the future, how quickly we bring them on board, and how we keep them trained is a key concern for me. So those initiatives, plus making sure we have the right people here to accomplish that mission, are the key things that I'm worried about right now. So before we conclude, we'd love to know what you're focusing on next in your personal life. Although you've only been CIO for about a year and a half, what do you see as the next step in your career? Right now, I'm having a good time here, and this is good enough for me. Well, it's great to hear. Thank you for speaking with us today. I know it's been a lot of fun for us, and we look forward to hearing what comes next. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Cybercast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. It is hosted by James Mersall and Abigail Blue. Produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. Governmentcio.com.